we believe better patient experiences begin with a commitment to every aspect of healthcare. This is Full Circle Healthcare, a MedSphere podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, for taking time out of your busy day. My name's David McFarlane, and I'm the Marketing Communications Manager for MedSphere. Today, we're very happy to have with us Christina Campos, who is the CEO of Guadalupe County Hospital in Santa Rosa, New Mexico. Christina, how are you? I'm doing well, David. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks. I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know how busy you are running a hospital. Yeah, we've been uh, busy and and on on all fronts. Uh, rural hospitals uh, have to do a, a, a lot of stuff, uh, and COVID has really exacerbated our workloads. Yeah, it has for everyone. So talk about that for a moment, if you would. Um, what has the year been like most recently f- uh, for your hospital, and what has life been like in Santa Rosa and dealing with the pandemic? Okay, well, well, you know, let me describe Santa Rosa first of all. We're a tiny community. We're about 2,500 people. Uh, our entire county has about 4,500 people uh, in a, about 3,000 square miles. So we, we're considered frontier by some definitions where we have uh, 1.5 people per square mile and uh, literally more cattle than people, <laughs> uh, which is not unusual for uh, frontier America. Uh, we're also located on Interstate 40, uh, which is uh, the old Route 66. So we have a lot of traffic coming to our community or through our community. And we have a correctional facility uh, right outside of town that, that uh, at its peak had uh, 600 uh, the correctional inmates. And right now they're down to about 300. So, you know, we, we not only service the local population, we have to service the traveling public and, and the um, correctional facility inmates. Uh, so, so COVID has, has uh, been um, life-changing uh, in many ways. Um, we started hearing the rumors about it when everybody else did uh, last January, February, and and very quickly things started shutting down. Um, we started getting executive orders that we had to stop doing a lot of our elective procedures. And we don't do a lot in our hospital. We're a 10 bit facility. Uh, I have only 50 FTEs. Uh, we do have a specialty uh, pain intervention center uh, to help uh, the state, the overload of um, providers that, that uh, you know, or, or providers that are overloaded with having people, helping people get off of narcotics and other, uh, you know, opioid addictions. Um, and we had to scale back on that, which was a, a financial impact on us. Uh, we're, we're located on the eastern side of New Mexico, so we don't have a, the Native American population, which was uh, incredibly uh, negatively impacted. They're primarily on the western side of New Mexico. Okay. But uh, we did. We started hearing the rumors and started scaling back on businesses. And then um, our chief uh, ex- uh, medical officer was really all over this. And we just started gearing up, ordering supplies, ordering, um, you know, treatment, uh, PPE, restructuring our hospital, training our employees. Uh, and then soon after, uh, we started seeing cases and we actually had our first uh, mortality uh, in May. Uh, and it was uh, uh, somebody from the traveling public that came in through our ER and um, 
did not, uh, barely made it into the ER and died soon after. Well, that's a, that's a that's kind of a dramatic and a tragic way to be introduced to it in your patient population, and in that case, in a transient patient population. Um, that's a lot of balls to keep in the air for a small hospital. I don't know that larger facilities have to deal with, you know, the traveling population in your local community and an inmate population actually all at the same time. That seems complex. It, it is. Um, it, it's a volume issue more than anything else. And, and we have to be prepared and, and flexible to uh, expand our capacities uh, you know, either in the summertime when there's a lot of traffic or in the wintertime when there's a lot of traffic accidents. Uh, or, uh, you know, now during COVID where, uh, you know, we, we knew from the very beginning that the correctional facilities could be hit, um, you know, with a, a high um, rate of cases because of, of their, um, they live together, they cohabitate closely. Right. And so it's, it's difficult to uh, prevent infection spread. Uh, so, you know, when we were at our peak uh, back in November and again in February, I mean, at one point we had three uh, inmates in our 10 beds plus three other locals uh, with COVID. Uh, we were unable to transfer them out. And, and you know, through the New Mexico Hospital Association, we were able to offer our nurses some courses that helped them work to a higher uh, scope, uh, okay. make them, made them a, little, a lot more comfortable with um, ICU type patients that we normally would not keep. But that, that kind of a philosophy of expanding uh, and then contracting as the, the services are needed are not unusual for us. Uh, we staff our hospital usually with two RNs and a tech, and then the director of nurses also works the floor as needed. Uh, but we have a call tree. We always have additional nurses on call and they get paid to be on call. And when we have a large motor vehicle accident or this type of uh, expansion of, of needs, we just call everybody in and, and they come in as needed and then they just kind of start disappearing as, as the crisis um, kind of dissipates. Um, we were, were one of the fortunate hospitals did not, that did not have any turnover whatsoever. Uh, and especially in our nursing department. Um, and we have not used any agency staff anywhere in the hospital for at least 12 or 13 years. What do you attribute that to? How have you been able to accomplish that? You know, really, really long range planning. Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, the community started developing scholarships for nurses and for health-related fields and started identifying not just graduating high school seniors, but um, young mothers and fathers who wanted a career change uh, or who wanted to uh, get into the workforce once their children were in school. Uh, people that were very well entrenched in the community didn't have any plans of leaving. Uh, the senior scholarships work really well, but you send these kids off to the city and they're really reluctant to come back into a, a small town. Uh, but parents with small children, they want to raise their children here. So they're, they're a really good fit for our program of educating uh, the local workforce and then uh, employing them here at the hospital. Uh, so a lot of it is attributed to that. Uh, I think our CMO being so proactive and making sure that we started ordering uh, supplies and equipment really early on. Uh, my assistant administrator is also the lab director and also the hospital uh, 
infection preventionist, he was all over it, making sure we had the best uh, suits for for uh, peppers for for full coverage. Right. Um, he found some really innovative ones that actually uh, enclosed the face, but allowed the ears to be exposed so they could use the stethoscopes uh, and listen to lung and heart sounds and be able to talk to the patients uh, because those full hoods are almost impossible to use. Uh, so that was really important. But, um, you know, our staff felt very well supported. They felt um, very, very applied, you know, the different departments. Uh, we also took advantage of uh, the CARES COVID acts to, to buy anything that we needed uh, and took advantage of the, some of the uh, payroll protection programs, uh, not only to offset the losses, but to uh, be able to give out uh, hazard pay to okay. our most highly exposed staff. Right. So, I'm, I'm struck by um, the degree to which people have to wear a few different hats. You mm -hmm. just described a couple of your colleagues who have at least two different yeah. responsibilities or roles to play, um, which is fascinating because I think in a large, a lot of, uh, I'm assuming I don't work in one, but it seems like in a lot of uh, larger urban uh, facilities, people are more specialized. Yeah, you can't afford to do that in a really tiny place because there's just not enough volume for, for one FTE per task that has to be done. Uh, and there's not enough workforce either. Uh, so, for example, uh, I'm the head of the quality committee. Uh, I'm the CEO, I guess in a sense the COO also. Um, I, I do a lot of HR stuff. Um, you know, we have a CFO that only comes out a couple of days uh, out of the month to prepare the financials for the board. And so we have an accounting office. Right. But recently when we had a transition, I had to take over a lot of the accounting and uh, we we're also transitioning uh, systems, uh, computer systems. And so, you know, I'm still doing some of it and, and have talked to our HR person who is also accounts payable and payroll uh, and general, um, let's see, GL. She does all the accounting stuff. Uh, that soon I'll transfer that aspect of, of um, bookkeeping to her. But yeah, we all wear so many hats, and um, that much we, is clear. Yeah, yeah, interdisciplinary. Um, you know, it's it's a catchphrase, or became a catchphrase uh, several years ago. We've always been incredibly interdisciplinary uh, because we are such a small team. So, like way back in the old days. Uh, there were stories of the uh, plant ops guy helping in the ER do uh, compressions, okay. uh, chest compressions or bagging a patient. I mean, you know, you just, everybody needs to pitch in and, and uh, do their full share and, and uh, more. Right. So, which I find intriguing. Um, speak. Can you speak more to the role of the hospital in a small community like that? Because you're obviously an employer and you're mm -hmm. obviously a provider of essential care, but I think that rural hospitals are also deeply embedded in the community in ways that um, are more essential, maybe, than they are in the rural areas. Definitely, I mean, we, we, we are one of the anchor industries in our community, and um, we don't own the, pro the primary health care clinic. Uh, they're independent and have been for, for many, many years, but we partner with them and they're co-located on our campus, um, really, really closely aligned. Uh, their, their CMO is our CMO. 
they, they recently became an FQHC and, and that has even uh, streamlined the alignment even more or strengthened it. Uh, we're a primary employer in the community. Um, now during COVID, um, you know, government, you know, regardless of all their good intentions, takes a little bit longer to stand up uh, programs sometimes. Sure. Uh, so when the testing started going for COVID, uh, we set up testing immediately through the hospital. We said, just send it to us. We've got the staff. We've got everything in place. We'll just start doing it right away. And we continued being pretty much the only game in town in terms of testing until we started switching to a heavy load of treatment. And then the public health office took over the testing. They're also co-located on our campus. Good. Uh, so we switched over into treatment and then as the vaccine started being distributed uh the not just us all the rural hospitals uh you know stood up programs to for vaccination efforts and we were able to get our entire uh community um the the county at 40 percent vaccination rate um in the first month and then after that you know it's been more of a I think we're close to 70% fully vaccinated at this point, um, or at least partially vaccinated, 65% fully vaccinated. But uh, we're still, yeah, and we're still the That's only impressive. vaccinator in the county where we've done, uh, I think there's been a couple of times that the Department of Health has gone to a couple of the really tiny outlying villages and they did um, 100 at one and 50 at the other, but we've done the other, you know, given out the other 4,000 vaccines on our own here at the hospital or at the high school at a large event. Yeah, okay. So is New Mexico, I don't know, beyond Guadalupe County, has New Mexico been pretty receptive to a vaccine vaccine program or do you feel like Guadalupe County is, uh, has been more receptive to vaccination? No, do you know what? Um, I read today that that uh, the Navajo Nation is near 100% uh, vaccinated, and that's a good portion of, of Western New Mexico. That's the the three of the northeast uh, counties um, have a large portion of Navajo Nation within them. Uh, so they were really really proactive, but they also had FEMA helping them. And the urban areas, Albuquerque has been proactive. Uh, Santa Fe has been very proactive. Uh, the rural communities have been a lot more challenged. So I would say that we're easily the number one rural county in terms of vaccination rates. And it varies very much according to the, the uh, part of the state that you're located in. And uh, unfortunately, it also varies according to that county's political persuasion. Well, yeah. So as uh, I mean, that's, that's what's going on nationwide pretty much, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting to see uh, microcosms of the sort of uh, national trend within individual states. I think we're probably all, like, all experiencing that, but it is interesting to hear of someone else's experience. Right. So transitioning just a bit, um, we, you know, if you follow healthcare and if you follow hospitals, people are aware of the number, generally aware of the number of rural hospitals that have closed in recent years and in like the recent, the recent, uh, excuse me, the most recent decade. So talk about um, the challenges. I, th I think the financial challenges that rural hospitals face are unique. Do you feel like that's a constant challenge? Yeah, and, and, it, and it will continue to be into the future. Um, rural hospitals tend to be a lot more frail than, uh, 
large urban hospitals, um, even even rural hospitals are part of a larger system are more frail than the 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 urban hospital that they're they're part of. Um, we offer fewer services. We have uh, we don't have the the scale of you know the the economy of scale that the larger systems have. Right. Uh, you know, there's uh, fewer fewer other you know human resources and such. So the so it's it's just a, a general frailty. I think um, you know the changes in healthcare. Uh, they're hard to keep up with. Uh, for rural communities, it's, it's constantly, you know, uh, things going on, the way you have to build, the way you get reimbursed. Uh, there's a big shift right. now from volume to, to value-based, and, and, you know, the verdict is out on whether it's going to help or hurt uh, rural hospitals in the long run. Uh, my hospital is by no means immune to uh, the struggles of uh, rural health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved back in 1993 when our hospital was going through a, a crisis. Um, I got involved as a volunteer uh, and worked for about three years, became the finance officer, and not because I had any experience in finance. I, well, in finance I did, but restaurant finance. Okay. Uh, definitely not hospital finance, but it was like, hey, you know how to use a computer and do payroll? You're hired. You get to be the finance officer. Uh, and, and honestly, it wasn't that far from the truth and ended up for about three years. But from 93 till 2004, in a period of 11 years, this hospital had 11 administrators. Yeah, the annual uh, administrator, yeah. Yeah, and uh, a lot of them were administrators that came in from the outside that, that uh, you know, would try to help or they were people from inside the community that that stepped up, but maybe did not have the wherewithal to really make a difference. Um, I came back to the hospital. I, I quit working at the hospital back in 1996 and, and had the privilege of serving on different hospital boards throughout the state, uh, primarily University Hospital in Albuquerque, which is the, the largest standalone hospital in the state. Right. And uh, really got a, a pretty much an MBA, uh, a master's in hospital uh, governance and administration. And and when I came, you know, I, I never left my community. I have always lived here. We have businesses here. My kids were raised here. My husband is from here. I'm actually from Albuquerque. But um, you know, I had the benefit of a board that was very, uh, very business-minded, uh, very um, strong, um, well-trained. And uh, I actually got hired with the condition that I work, would work with a mentor. And, and little did they know that I took the position or even applied for the position only because there was a strong mentor available to me. And um, I, have no, I had known of her for many, many years, had never met her, but knew her by reputation that she knew everything there was to know about uh, rural uh, New Mexico hospitals. Okay. So that benefit of having somebody, um, and, I, and I do stress to a lot of rural hospitals that are having a lot of changes that if they can have the best of both worlds, have an, uh, an outside consultant that has the knowledge and have somebody from within the community that has a vested interest in the long-term survival of that hospital, uh, that should be a winning formula. Right. 
So it sounds like you're saying that, well, you did just say that having somebody that's embedded and invested in the community is essential and not just, I mean, you might have MBAs and masters in hospital administrations, but they're carpetbaggers. They're not necessarily invested in your community. That's, that was extremely important, I think you're saying, correct? Yeah, it, it's it's so true. Um, you know, I remember, and it's been a long time, it's been 17 years now, but part of one of the interview questions that I had is, um, why me and not the other people that were interviewing for the position? And, and I told him, uh, because I have a vested interest in the community. This is where my children get emergency health care. Uh, if I get sick, this is where I'm going to go. This is where my neighbors go. And I can't afford to, uh, for lack of a better way, and I'm sure this is what I told them, I can't afford to screw this up and walk away okay. uh, because I live here. You have skin in the game. Tons of it. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, the outreach program, the scholarship program you were talking about in terms of uh, recruiting nurses is really interesting, that kind of proactive thing. Um, what other things uh, is Guadalupe County doing to proactively to head off what you anticipate the challenges to be in the future? Well, we have partnerships with the University of New Mexico and uh, rural residency programs. So uh, we work with them to help um, fund a residency slot. And uh, with that slot, we get any probably about eight to 10 residents that come and spend a month out here. So we've been able to recruit physicians in that way. We also partner with the community colleges uh, to serve as a training site uh, for uh, rad techs or, or uh, lab techs. Uh, you know, just, we still do a ton of uh, education um, either through scholarships or tuition reimbursement for our employees to continue developing them even once they're hired. Uh, so it's this constant thing of, of um, keeping up with with uh, change, keeping up with uh, with you know people's changing career paths, um, never letting up. Uh, you know we we might have a lot of nurses right now, but it could be that someone's retiring at the school or at one point the correctional facility needed a lot of nurses. We just keep trying to you know, encourage uh, people to go to nursing school and keep pumping them out as much as we possibly can and not rest on our laurels. Because you can't afford to. No, no, I mean, before you know it, you're suddenly short staffed and, and didn't see where it was coming from. So do you think Guadalupe County is, re County, excuse me, is representative of the kinds of challenges that face rural facilities nationwide? In what ways is it similar? In what ways is it different? The ways it's similar is is that um, you know we struggle with uh, declining populations in our communities. We struggle with uh, rural communities tend to be older, uh, sicker, poorer. Uh, so that's very similar. It doesn't matter if you're in in the Midwest or if you're in the Southeast or or here in the Southwest. It's it's pretty much the same thing. It's it's a struggle for uh, rural America to survive. Uh, where we are different is uh, we're still very much a standalone hospital. Uh, there's the, my entire, and we're county owned. Uh, my entire governance structure is five community board members, myself and my staff, and then three county commissioners that we report to um, on an as-needed basis or an annual basis. It's pretty much an arm's length uh, relationship. 
We've also been able to uh, create substantial reserves for our hospital uh, to, to be able to navigate the changes uh, in, in a way that, um, you know, we don't have to worry about going bankrupt in the process of changing maybe a billing system right. or um, we don't have to worry about, you know, will we survive this payment change because we've put up substantial reserves to carry us through uh, rough waters until we get our, our uh, you know, I'm mixing metaphors here, but get on solid ground uh, eventually. Okay. Interesting. You talked, you talked about um, the local community that in rural parts of the country, people do tend to be sicker, they tend to be older. Um, what kinds of ailments does the hospital end up treating most of the time? What's, what are the primary healthcare challenges in the community, I think I should say? Yeah, diabetes is, is uh, a constant concern. Um, CHF um, and COPD on a lesser degree, I think the, the campaigns that, that, um, that were really, really strong back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s against smoking did help to some extent. So you do see a lot less uh, COPD in our community that you might have maybe 10, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something that shows later in life often, and, and we're not seeing as many cases. Uh, and then and then you get your other cases. We get a lot of motor vehicle accidents uh, because of the highway. Uh, we get some swimming accidents because we've got uh, lakes and um, scuba diving holes here in the middle of the desert. So we, we do okay. encounter some um, water-related accidents. But uh, in terms of, um, I mean, just your regular your cholecystitis or you know your kidney infections and um, your maybe uh, some some issues with sepsis and all that but we don't do surgery here uh, so pretty much anything that's treated uh, by a, a internist or or a family practice provider do surgical procedures have to go to Albuquerque and how I'm not sure exactly how far you are from Albuquerque we are about uh, 115 miles uh, from Albuquerque um probably about close to 120 miles to the that hospital in albuquerque or the closest hospital about 115 110 miles to santa fe it's at at a north it's northwest from us uh but hospitals that are that are just a tad bit larger than us uh the nearest one is 65 miles away and their services uh we don't necessarily transfer to them uh, for a higher level of care. We end up transferring almost always to Albuquerque. Okay. And um, yes, surgeries do go to Albuquerque. Uh, we we will send by ground or by ambulance emergencies uh, uh, or referrals for outpatient surgery to Albuquerque as well. Okay. You know, you mentioned previously requirements um, of the federal government. Um, and how I think for all hospitals, though, those are becoming increasingly reporting requirements, um, things like that are becoming increasingly um, more challenging to deal with. They're asking for a lot of data and they're monitoring hospital behavior on a regular basis. Is the federal yeah. government, what is the federal government doing to help um, make sure that that doesn't become too big a burden on hospitals that don't have uh, a lot of resources in terms of uh, reporting and, and data sharing. 
Um, nothing. No. Uh, they <laughs> actually, uh, they have done a little bit. And, and uh, you know, um, the, the previous administration did do some streamlining and, of, you know, regulator- regulatory relief mm-hmm. um, for hospitals. Um, a lot of that was kind of buried by COVID uh, because there was an additional reporting of uh, PPE and inventories and uh, vaccine inventories and vaccine registries uh, that we're still doing. We're doing daily reporting of our, of our census, COVID-related census, um, uh, inventi- you know, weekly reporting of our PPE and our medication stocks, um, vaccination um, inventories. Uh, you know, anytime we do vaccines, we have to update them into a scheduling registry as well as the vaccine registry, the state um, immunization system. Uh, but we also, even though we're a tiny hospital, we're not a critical access hospital. We, most hospitals as small as we are, uh, are critical access, but is, is primarily a, a payment reimbursement, uh, methodology. Uh, so we're PPS hospitals. We have to comply with the same conditions of participation as all PPS, uh, prospective payment system hospitals. Uh, so you know, that is a huge burden to small hospitals because you, you know, they've got a compliance officer and a compliance department and they've got probably in-house legal and then they've got, uh, you know, people that do just reporting, uh, not to say that it's just reporting, but that's their primary focus. Here we all have to do it. So my assistant administrator does the daily uh, COVID census reporting. If he's out, I have to do it for him. Uh, one of the nurses does the nurse the PPE on Wednesdays and then on weekends. Uh, it, it's a ton, and I've you know I had the privilege of serving on the American Hospital Association Board of Directors uh, for three years, and I just came off the board in uh, December. And it's something that they've been uh, trying to tackle for a long time: is this uh, unfunded mandates, uh, a lot of reporting, a lot of time spent uh, measuring things, and and. We agree, you know, all of us agree that it's important to measure quality. It's important, you know, things that aren't measured don't improve. Uh, but it's a lot, and it's especially a lot for a tiny hospital. Um, and and then you add state regulation on top of federal regulation. And, you know, I've used the term many times, but it just feels like death by a million paper cuts. Right. So... Where can you see uh, room for improvement? Um, maybe at the state level, uh, certainly at the federal level. What kind of changes uh, would you suggest? What kind of changes that the AHA is suggesting? What, what are they suggesting also? Well, I think they did They did advocate for regulatory relief and for streamlining the uh, reporting metrics for, you know, uh, instead of reporting on 60 things that, that are important. Why don't, report, why don't we report on 20 things that are vital uh, that we can move the needle on? 